you know, for me, it's always been, uh, there's a thrill of collection and you know, these things are one of a kind pieces, you know, you're not going to find them anywhere. And once you get rid of them, they're gone. So I covet them. I have them stored in a very, very nice warehouse. And it all started when I worked at Ralph. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. If you have the time, please subscribe and leave a review. It truly helps. Thanks a bunch for listening, and please enjoy today's guest on Collector's Gene Radio. When it comes to American menswear, a few names stick out like Ralph Lauren and J. Crew. But those two brands really can't be mentioned without naming Todd Snyder, who's truly at the helm of American menswear as we know it today. An alumni of both previously mentioned brands, Todd decided to start an eponymous menswear brand at the age 40 and has really taken everything he learned from his previous endeavors and combined it with his personal taste to create a brand that really each and every one of you should be aware of today. I mean, GQ did, after all, once describe him as the guy who other guys trust to do what they themselves can't which is make them look and feel like better versions of themselves. But Todd's not one to shy away from letting the brands that he loves do what they're best at. I mean, he's even found a way to do collaborations with quite a few of them, like Champion. Todd has an ongoing collaboration with them, which has become some of his best sellers. But what most might not know about him is that his love for Champion came early on in his career. He's got a collection of Champion goods that exceeds the number 2000 and is truly ever-growing. From hunting basements in Japan to getting a separate warehouse to store them all, it's safe to say he's a collector at heart. He actually called our chat a therapy session, so I think we hit some heartstrings. Just visit one of his many stores and you'll see he's a collector of many items from champion to furniture, watches, you name it. But until then, please enjoy Todd Snyder for Collector's Gene Radio. Todd Snyder, so excited to catch up with you today on Collector's Gene Radio. That's great to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So for, for those that don't know you, um, which I would be shocked if they're listening to this podcast, but you are really at the helm of American menswear. Uh, would you say that that's, I mean, you probably don't want to get to uh, compliment yourself too much, but I'm sure uh, you, you, you can take that for sure, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel really fortunate to be where I am. I wouldn't say I'm at the helm. I mean, there's so many between Ralph and, you know, I think there's so many menswear gurus out there. It's going to be tough for me to say I'm at the helm, but it's, um, I know we're having quite a moment right now. I would say that. And, um, just really starting to expand on what we built, uh, five or six years ago. For sure. And so you're, you're based out in New York now and, and you're starting to open up stores all over the place, but your your roots actually really start in Iowa. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. I started working in Iowa. I was um, worked in a men's store there called Bedowers. It's like very traditional menswear haberdashery in Des Moines, Iowa. And that's really where I kind of fell in love with um, just menswear in general. And, um, you know, Ralph Lauren for me was always my ultimate brand and still is that, uh, just kind of taught me to love menswear and to really, uh, I just got into dressing up. I don't, I don't know what it was more so than just, um, I know girls liked it. So getting the attention of girls was always my motivation. Um, but yeah, that's where I started. And then I moved to New York, um, like 30 years ago. And so you moved to New York in 92, and for someone that grew up loving Ralph so much, most people would be, I guess, intimidated, you know, to try and find their way into to working for him. But that's kind of exactly what you did, right? You, you moved to New York and you went right to Ralph. Yeah, I mean, that was my goal. I read Ralph's book um, back in the, in the, I think it was late 80s, early 90s. And, um, I didn't know you could do this for a living, to be honest with you. And, um, really kind of set my sights on learning everything I could about menswear. So I worked at a men's store and learned how to sew. I learned how to do alterations and just kind of immerse myself in the business. I, 
I was studying originally. I switched majors probably four or five times. Um, but I started off in freshman engineering and then I went to architecture and then ended up going to business. And right about a year before I was going to graduate, I switched majors again and was realizing I didn't want to be a banker. And I was, like I said, I was working at the menswear store and that really just kind of became my focus. I, and I realized Iowa State actually had a program in fashion design and textiles and clothing and talked to a friend of mine and he was in the program. We both worked in retails and I remembered asking him like, aren't you in some design program or fashion program? So I ended up switching. I graduated like a year and a half, two years later. I was in school for about six years, no doctorate, but uh, moved to New York city and, and Ralph was kind of my dream job. So I cold called them and um, I had probably about a dozen interviews when I came out to visit. I, I did a portfolio. I was still in school and, you know, tried to get into all the menswear places, you know, Calvin Klein to Ralph to um, there was a bunch of menswear brands at the time that were in business. Joseph Abood, um, Andrew Feza. Um, these are kind of like the old guard of American menswear. And ended up getting the call back from, from Ralph. So I, I took the job and worked the summer there. And then I ended up getting a job um, when I graduated. It was more, again, kind of a continuation of the internship. And, um, and then my first real paying job was actually J. Crew. And um, that was in 93. And um, never looked back after that. It was really kind of a dream come true for me to to be in menswear, but also be here in New York City. And at J. Crew, you meet somebody who's going to be really influential and important in your life, probably to even this day, and that would be Mickey Drexler. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I met Mickey. I mean, I, I worked for The Gap on and off for about 10 years in total. And that's where I met Mickey. And I remember Mickey left The Gap and you know, bought part of J crew and ended up running J crew for a long time. And, uh, he called me up to, to do menswear there. And it was like a dream come true. Cause I knew it was a job I really wanted to do. Obviously I'd been there in night in the early nineties. Um, actually Jenna Lyons was still there and, uh, her and I were good friends. So it was almost like a homecoming in a way. I worked at J crew in 92 to like 94 and, um, ended up coming back, I want to say, you know, 2004, 2005. I don't, can't remember the dates as well as I used to, but, um, yeah, I headed up men's there for five years, uh, before I went out on my own. And, and Mickey was just amazing for me, kind of learning the whole business side of things. And then you go on to launch your own brand, which in my opinion is, is really a culmination of everything that is great about Ralph and everything that's great about J crew really meshed into one and you're, you're kind of the only person doing it. I mean, was that your goal when you launched your, you know, your, the brand under your own name, Todd Snyder to be a mix of, of your style and your taste, but also J crew and Ralph kind of all in one. Well, not necessarily. I mean, it was really, um, you know, as a designer, you try to come up with your own point of view. I think being an American designer is is important just because I, I feel you know in menswear you think about the whole lineage of menswear and uh, you know Ralph for me has always been kind of the best and is the best um, and there's been many designers before me you know between you know Tom Ford Tom Brown of today Perry Ellis for me was always a good uh, when he was alive and, and running his business with somebody I always looked up to. And, you know, there's many other designers that a lot of people don't know about, whether it was Andrew Fezzo, which I mentioned before, Bill Robinson was another really awesome menswear designer. And being an American menswear designer, it's, it's, it's rare because most of the brands that are out there are mostly European or they're brands that really they don't really have a designer per se, like Hugo Boss. There's not a Hugo Boss designer. It's it's really just a brand name. 
you know, Peter Millar is the same way. It's not, there's no Peter Millar behind Peter Millar. So, um, I really wanted something that was personal for me and, and kind of growing up in America and really understanding, you know, kind of that history and understanding, you know, Brooks brothers to kind of the beginnings of menswear to Jay press and kind of how menswear kind of was built around kind of this tailored haberdashery sensibility and then kind of evolved into a bit more of a casual sensibility like denim and infusing denim and, and being a menswear designer, it's really important to kind of have, it's almost like a melting pot in a way you'll have a prep influence. You'll have, you know, influence from military influence from vintage, uh, from Western, you know, a lot of people don't realize military, for example, influences all of us and how we dress, you know, everything from a Chino came from the military to a t-shirt came from the Navy. Uh, a desert boot came from, you know, troops in the desert in Northern Africa. A lot of the things we kind of hold near and dear to us all kind of started with this very utilitarian purpose. But for the most part, you know, menswear hasn't really changed in the last hundred years. Guys are still wearing ties. Guys are still wearing suits. Guys are still wearing, you know, maybe the only thing that's really been kind of new in the last 20 or 30 years is kind of the injection of the streetwear influence, whether it's sneakers or whether it's, um, uh, you know, track suits and how that kind of gets uh, blended into the, the mix. It's really kind of an amalgamation of all those things put together that really makes up what I think is American. So I try to put my own spin on it. I kind of always use the analogy, you know, it's like a great chef. All the ingredients are known. It's how you put it together that makes it new. I mean, you know, GQ did once describe you as the guy who other guys trust to do what they themselves can't, which is make them look and feel like better versions of themselves. So I would say you're doing a pretty, pretty darn good job. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so, so back to when you were at J crew with Mickey, you guys launched something called the liquor store, which you're running now, but I can imagine working for a big corporate brand like J crew. That was not an easy to do. No, it wasn't. I, so when I was at J crew, um, this was, you know, from, 2004 to 2009, essentially. Menswear was always kind of the stepchild. And um, we were always in the basement of a store. We we're always in the back of the catalog. And Mickey really wanted men to shine. So he enlisted Andy Spade, who's brilliant. He's a genius. He sure is. Just thought starter. And just he's so great at kind of just thinking beyond kind of the he thinks he's a marketer, you know, in a way, but he thinks, you know, he's an ad guy originally. Is he a Ralph alum too? Uh, no, he wasn't. Um, he, he was always in advertising and then he and, and Kate Spade started, you know, Kate Spade, but he was really kind of the one that made it uh, very kind of quirky and you know, really, you know, came up with the labeling to the way it was presented. He was always just, he's just very good at pinpointing ideas and executing it. And, and when I say pinpointing, making things that are really witty and relevant, there's, there's no, there's nobody in today that I know that is as good as him. Like he is. So Mickey, you know, obviously being a smart guy enlisted him to really help unlock the menswear um, piece because menswear up until 2008, 2009 was, was always there. It was always kind of uh, an afterthought. And then after the liquor store, you know, Andy concepted that whole thing. Andy came in and you know brought um, his partner, Anthe uh, Sperduti, who both did Jack Spade together, and just really both were ad guys, but just understood the whole you know style and narrative that uh, was missing for us, and really kind of added that to um, what we were already doing in menswear. So. Mickey wanted this, um, you know, moment for menswear to shine because we would do these big presentations and we would show them almost like store concepts. And Andy came in and said, you need to do a store. And Andy had this idea for Jack Spade that, um, cause at that point he had sold, um, Jack Spade and Kate Spade to Liz Claiborne. Um, and they were out of it. So they kind of, he kind of dusted that off. I, you know, idea, but then, 
took it to the next level for us and had this space. It was an old bar and it was called liquor store and they lost their liquor license. And, um, you know, it was open, it was empty and we ended up jumping on that deal. Um, and then it was very fast and how quickly we grew that business. You know, I was there for about a year, year or so, a year and a half after Andy had kind of come on consulting and that just changed everything. All of a sudden menswear was on the map for J crew. We opened up our 484 Broadway store, our first menswear, like real store, meaning like a liquor store, small and tiny. It was about 800 square feet. And we opened a 484, it was about 3,000 square feet. Um, and it really became uh, the proof of concept for menswear. And after that, it just was off to the races. I ended up leaving to do my own thing after that because I had kind of seen my proof of concept and, and had turned 40 earlier that year and just decided to go off on my own and, and really, you know, build my own kind of version of it. What a, what a time in, in your life to, you know, leave a, a, an amazing corporate position to, to go out on your own. That's uh, definitely remarkable. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, you know, was probably a little crazy and a little naive at the time. Um, and I remember I resigned to Mickey on a Friday and then this was probably in September. And, and then on Monday, Lehman brothers had folded. So the world was collapsing around me. Um, and I remember Mickey like two months after I resigned, he's like, are you sure you want to leave? And I'm like, yep, I'm sure I'd, I'd made my <laughs> mind up and I had saved up enough money and it was something I, I knew I had to do or, or kind of never do. It was, you know, getting to an age where I, you know, knew I needed to do this or just kind of bury that idea. So I, I went for it. Well, hats off to you. One of the the things that I think that you've implemented in in the best way that a lot of I feel brands need to take note on is something that you adopted from Ralph, which is the rig room. That was my when I worked at Ralph uh, in college. That was my favorite part of being there was going into the rig rooms and and walking into a story, right? And that's something that you've really uh, adopted and put into your stores and your catalogs and everything. And I feel like it's really what helps people when they're trying to pick out an outfit or pick out a shirt, right? How, how is it going to look on them? Well, at least they can see a full ensemble in the in the proper setting of what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Are the rig rooms something that you, you, you were like, you, you left Ralph and, and you always had this idea in the back of your head that, that really stuck with you to do that? Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely became a part of my process. I think the one thing that Ralph invented, not only, you know, just, I feel he kind of created, um, popularity around things that were you know, truly iconic menswear pieces, whether it's the Chino, whether it's an Oxford shirt, whether it's, uh, you know, a Navy blazer or, uh, you know, a knit polo, you know, all of these things really did exist before him, but he made them so cool and relevant at the time and still are. They, they've, you know, tested, the, you know, stand the test of time. They've, you know, still are what people go to. And, and he really kind of set the standard, but he also did it from a place of authenticity, meaning he was always about history, always about vintage. And the thing I learned very quickly is how much he would look at the history books to kind of go forward. And I learned a lot about how to shop for vintage because obviously there's, there's good vintage. There's a lot of bad vintage out there. And just because you're finding something that is like, Oh, I found this from the 1980s doesn't make, make it good. You know, trying to find something that's really rare and really beautiful and has kind of endured time. And you look at it today with the same, you know, kind of appreciation that, that someone would have had back in the sixties is really special. And I learned how to find those gems and, you know, whether it's, you know, working with vintage dealers, whether it's, uh, you know, traveling in the world and looking through different, you know, markets, um, whether it's even now, you know, shopping on eBay to first dibs to Etsy, I'm always looking for, you know, there's so much that's been done out there 
that, you know, kind of relooking at the past and seeing how to reinterpret it is important because like I had said earlier, you know, a lot of things, everything's been done for the most part, but like finding a great old vintage leather jacket, you know, for me is the thrill. There's, there's a hunt for finding these things that are gems. And, and part of the reason why I ended up doing collaboration with champion really kind of was derived from that early on experience with Ralph and, and coveting and, you know, finding these one of a kind pieces that may have been in somebody's, you know, basement or may have been someone's garage and, and find their way into a thrift store, like to find a, a real, you know, gem of a piece, you know, champion being that from the fifties is, is hard to find. And quite honestly, it's really expensive. I mean, you'll find a really beautiful piece from the fifties. That's good in good condition. That will cost you sometimes $2,000. Um, and whether it's like an old, varsity jacket or an old sweatshirt that has great stitching and the labels in good condition. A lot of what I do now is I'm always kind of looking into the past and working at Ralph was my first kind of experience into, you know, and, and Ralph just doesn't go Ralph's team. I'd say doesn't just go to markets and kind of just deal with the, the salesperson there. They, they, they kind of want to get to know them and then they want to get to know where their source is. And, and they try to get into the kind of where the food chain is, I would say where it starts, where it originated from, where did they find it from? A lot of these dealers actually have a warehouse that they will let you go through. And there's a whole ecosystem around vintage that I never knew existed. And it's pretty interesting. And it's really, there's some legends out there that, uh, you know, are somewhat famous, um, that Ralph really kind of put on the map, whether it's, you know, guys like John Gallagher, who uh, used to work at Ralph Lauren and started his own, you know, vintage, uh, resource to, um, Larry Heller, who did Heller's kitchen in Seattle to Bob Mellett, who used to work at Ralph as well, who just, you know, was an amazing, uh, just had an amazing eye for vintage apparel. And, and there's dozens of them. I mean, another one I, which who I love is uh, Christoph. He owns Mr. Freedom and has started his own collection, but he has a store in Los Angeles. All of these resources you kind of got to know from Ralph, and all of that helped inform and, and really became, you know, a great resource for me. And again, this was all before the internet and all before all of these markets that are happening virtually. Um, but these guys acted as a filter for you. So you were able to work with them and find these great one of a kind pieces that you would end up putting in what you were saying, a rig room and a rig room is essentially a room where it's almost like a virtual, uh, mood board. As you said, it's a room that's, that looks like you're walking into a movie set and it has everything from the, you know, what watch the guy's going to wear to, you know, maybe what a chair looks like, maybe what, you know, wall covering to, you know, outfit that he would wear. And Ralph covets, you know, vintage to a, a level that no one else does. And he still gets so excited by um, these one of a kind pieces and really wants to replicate that as authentically as he can. And, you know, for me, that's where it really kind of, changed my whole process after, um, working there. The, the first time I worked there, I wasn't allowed to go in the rig rooms. Um, but, but I definitely snuck my way into, yeah. Um, just because everything in there is one of a kind and, and you can't touch anything. You can't, you know, I remember you like, you go up and you kind of feel a jacket and you almost get yelled at by the, the designers. Um, but, uh, but definitely that's kind of become, you know, part of my process as well. I want to go back to Champion because that's mainly what we're here to talk about today. If anyone goes into your stores or goes on your website, they're going to see that Champion has a big presence for your brand. But what they probably don't know about you is that you yourself actually have probably a collection of over 2,000 or around 2,000 Champion sweatshirts. Is that is that bad? Accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I stopped counting uh, <laughs> at, at some point. My, uh, my brother, um, all the stuff is actually kept, we have a warehouse in Iowa and he, he works with me and he's always like, 
keeping track of everything. And he, sometimes he reminds me of how many we have. And he's like, do we want to get rid of these? And I'm always like, no, not yet. And, um, you know, for me, it's always been, uh, there's a thrill of collection and you know, these things are one of a kind pieces, you know, you're not going to find them anywhere. And once you get rid of them, they're gone. So I covet them. I have them stored in a very, very nice warehouse. And it all started when I worked at Ralph. I, I remember, and I didn't know this whole ecosystem existed, meaning like literally people will buy bales of clothing, meaning like clothes that are in bales, like these big giant bales. And when clothes go, you know, to thrift stores or they go to the Salvation Army or they go to whatever reciprocal there is, they go through a process where they get, you know, cleaned um, and then they get graded. And um, graded means like, okay, this is really good vintage. This is rare. This is not so good. Or this is, you know, a throwaway. It's got holes in it. It's, it's not worth keeping. Or this goes to another resale venue. They kind of grade the entire assortment. So, you know, things as it progresses will bubble to the top. You know, you might have something, you know, Ralph Lauren is, it has a really good resale value. So you'll start to see Ralph Lauren product in that ecosystem, which is really interesting. And, um, I realized early on that I was like, you know, this champion has such a devoted following. And I realized very quickly, and a lot of this came from the Japanese, to be honest with you, Japanese covet Americana. And my trips, my trips to Japan just opened my eyes to this whole new world of, of Americana. And, and I know it sounds kind of weird that I have to go to Japan to, to <laughs> find, you know, somebody's appreciation for Americana, but they really do everything from Levi's to Red Wing to Alden, uh, to champion. Hey, people are now going to Japan for pizza. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, true. Uh, you're exactly right. But they, <laughs> Um, baseball, you know, you think about that as well. They really, um, admire, uh, you know, just the American culture and covet it. And so to be honest with you, that's where I got a lot of my ideas to J crew for collapse was my, my travels abroad. You know, I'd go to London and I'd go to Tokyo and Osaka. And that's really where I kind of got the idea to, Hmm, maybe I should be doing collabs with Alden or maybe I should be doing, collabs with uh red wing and sure enough when i was j crew those were some of my first collaborations and i had tried down the path of, of champion but it, it it takes a long time to do these to do these collabs because you're i got probably told no a hundred times by red wing <laughs> and same thing with L.O. bean i just re- recently did that a couple years ago and um I'm always trying to figure out, you know, how, cause you can't just call the CEO and say, Hey, I want to do a collab. You got to figure out how right. to work your way through the system and get to the right person. And, um, you know, I was very good about, you know, keeping, you know, on, you know, champion, but it took until I went out on my own to, to really get to do that, that collab. So it, it was definitely something I wanted to do, um, when I was working at J crew, but, you know, for me, there's probably nothing better brand wise than champion. And that's really kind of been become a part of big part of my business as well. Right. So your, your collecting of champion product has predated you launching your own brand, but you were kind of already manifesting it when we were at J crew, hoping to do it there. And, um, obviously when you left, you had your, your sights set on trying to make that work for yourself, which is pretty neat to see that come to fruition. I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I started collecting Champion back in, I would say, 98. I was at Ralph in 98. I started collecting it then. And I had this other brand. I still have this other brand called Tailgate Clothing Company, which is built around collegiate sweatshirts. And a lot of that came from Champion. Um, and I had I had done that on the side. And um, my brother was actually doing it full time. And another, my business partner, Steve King, um, who I worked with at Ralph Lauren ended up doing it full time. So I always kind of had this dream of doing a kind of collegiate sweatshirt thing and, and tailgate kind of became that. Is tailgate still around? Tailgate's still around. It's, it's a, 
kind of on pause right now. Um, it's under American Eagle and American Eagle owns, you know, hundred percent of my brand as well as tailgate. Um, and during the pandemic, you know, it had to kind of take a break, um, just because of obvious reasons with just people weren't going to school and it just became like, we need to focus on the business at hand. And, and so tailgate kind of became a back burner project. So it's very back burner now, I'd say, but yeah, it's, it's still, it's still going and, and I still have dreams to kind of bring that back, but yeah, we were doing all the universities, uh, we're doing major league baseball, doing NBA. Um, and now you're starting to see a little bit of that kind of creeping its way into Todd Snyder. So it's good. But, um, but yeah, I started, uh, collecting in, in like late nineties and I just kept collecting. And like whenever I go on a trip, my favorite pastime is to go into vintage stores and just dig and, um, try to find these gems. What is it about vintage champion though, that gets you kind of in that collector mode for, for when you are hunting for these things? I think what really gets me going, it's just the, it's, it's a, it's almost like a drug to me now, but it's like trying to find unique things or whether it's a cool graphic or whether it's a kind of a antiquing of a great graphic that you see like a weathering on the graphic where it's maybe not perfect um, or a silhouette or a stitch or just a rare garment that is um, hard to find. And with Champion, Champion um, has been around since 1919. And, you know, before Nike, before Adidas, before any of these brands, you know, they, they started. And it's hard to find brands that stand the test of time, that are around, you know, a century later. And, you know, Champion is definitely one of those. And it really you know, comes about the hunt of trying to find these pieces that uh, nobody else has. In fact, when I started doing the collaboration with Champion, I actually had a better archive than they did. <laughs> I would say at two thousand pieces, that 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 that'd be pretty uh, obvious. But that's pretty pretty hilarious to think about. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about what you know, these brands they start off. The, you know, they Champion was based in Rochester, New York, and it changed hands a few times. In fact. Sarah Lee, who is kind of the Sarah Lee Cakes, very successful company, had bought Champion, I want to say back in the 80s, I think. Do you know what the motivation was there? I think they also owned Hanes at the time. I can't remember, to be very okay. honest with you. I should know these things. Um, but they, you know, they were, I think, they were kind of seeing themselves very much like a GE at the time. GE would kind of diversify its portfolio by buying different companies and applying their philosophy, business philosophy to those other businesses. So I think it was very similar for Sarah Lee. They owned Coach as well at the time. So that obviously doesn't make sense with uh, Cakes. But um, I think because they were successful you know, they, um, they owned quite a few other companies. They, they now have kind of sold those off and focused in on their business, but they had owned, owned coach, they had owned champion. Um, and then champion, I think sold the Haynes. I think that's how it is. Haynes bought them, which makes more sense because Haynes, you know, t-shirts and whatnot makes more sense. Sure. So anyway, because of all that, you know, change in ownership, nobody was really kind of coveting the archives. It was just, you know, something that was out there. So I have a digital file of all their catalogs from not all of them, but a lot of their catalogs from back in the day when they used to do, you know, college bookstores. Um, so that, that was a good one to get actually. But yeah, it was always the kind of, I just, the more I dug, the more I dug, the more I'd find. And it was just the type of thing that you're always looking to find something you haven't seen before. And, um, and I always find something. It's always, I always think I have everything. And then I'm like, oh, I don't have that one. I need to have it. And um, it, it is probably a bit of a problem, I would say, if, you know, <laughs> if I think about it from well, the outside. <laughs> how, how do you archive a collection that large? I mean, I, I know you said you have a warehouse, but are you organizing them by color or by style? We have a catalog now. My brother manages it. We have a catalog of them. We have digital images on them. Uh, you know, very like, you know, pulled away. And then we have like zoomed in kind of look at the stitching and then we have images of the graphics. Um, you know, God forbid anything happens to it, but they're all very nicely folded into, to bin. 
it's pretty impressive when you see it. I, I know for me, whenever I go home, I'm always like pulling down a bin and just kind of going through it. Or even though I have digital images, it's still, there's nothing like kind of seeing something. And it's almost like, cause you, I can't remember everything. So it is a lot of like revisiting things for the first time again. Do you ever look back at your collection when you're kind of coming out with new products for champion collabs that you guys do and, and maybe a new colorway or. I mean, I look at, um, it's neat to do Google searches, um, on just, you know, vintage champion. Cause a lot of our stuff comes up first, which is nice, but yeah, I'm always kind of looking back at what we do and, and looking back and whenever I start a new season, um, that's how kind of I start the process is I'll kind of look through what we have, but then I'll also do a trip. I haven't traveled in probably two, three years in a big way where I used to literally fly around the world. I would go to Japan, I go to London or I go to LA or I go to um, Seattle and I would search for the stuff. I haven't done the big deep dive like that in a while. So I kind of miss, but that's, that's how I generally would start a season is um, I create a mood board. Um, you know, I'm not doing quite the rigs that, uh, they used to do a Ralph, but I'm, I'm doing my digital version of it. Um, which actually is for me really good. I, I, I use Pinterest a lot. I don't know if anybody is a Pinterest uh, nerd like me, but I, I used to have so much swipe, um, from magazines and books that I would use as inspiration. Um, but now I've digitized all of that. It's all on my Pinterest boards. A lot of them are hidden, but I do do a lot of research. I'm always constantly looking at books and magazines and travel and movies and art. And just that's kind of how I start my mood boards. And um, it's a virtual rig room, I would say, uh, just because I don't have the space to do that as much. And to be honest with you, it's really hard to do. Those, those guys at Ralph are amazing. Like, it's just unbelievable. One of my favorite, we, we opened up a store in East Hampton. And we're probably about four doors down um, from the RRL store and the Ralph store. And I remember we were opening up the store. This is about two years ago. And it's, you know, we're a small team. Like it's maybe like 30 of us on the team. And we're growing, but we're, we're still pretty small. So All hands on deck. It is. So we're opening up the store. I'm there. I have my head of vision merchandising who's there. And we're like, you know, cobbling together, trying to like, oh, we need a bench or, oh, we need this. And Ralph is redoing their windows. They have two giant moving vans and about 10 guys and girls like standing. It looks like a movie set and they're redoing their stores for the next season. And it looks like, like they're moving stuff out. They're moving stuff in and it looks like a movie set. It really does. It's unbelievable what they do. I can't do that. (laughs) I don't have I, I don't have that talent, and I also just don't have that uh, budget either. But um, it is very impressive what they do. And, um, you know, I do my things my way, um, but I think it's influenced so many people. Um, I know so many different brands have, you know, because all of us kind of went through, a lot of us went through the Ralph doors. And you'd be shocked at how many people um, now do kind of the rig concept rooms and, you know, between you know, people from Ralph went to Abercrombie, went to J crew, went to American Eagle, went to gap. And, and now that's kind of become a common practice on how people, you know, design a collection, but, but there's nobody, I can tell you bar none. There's nobody as good as Ralph's team as, you know, John Verage, John Verage, who's on there leads up their design teams. Just incredible. He's probably the best at what he does. Well, you're doing a pretty good job too. So don't, uh, don't cut yourself too short. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I learned a lot. I tell you, I, one thing I, I do is I learn and I'm a, I'm a sponge and you know, I try to surround myself with people that I admire as well. And, um, this guy on my team, Kenny Thomas, he used to be my boss at, at, uh, Ralph. He was, uh, in charge of double RL and he did blue label as well when I was there. And, um, he and I both, you know, we worked for John Barbados when he was there. So I learned a lot and, um, Kenny is on my team now and he's, he's amazing. Like he always felt like he had the best taste and just the best eye for what's relevant, but also, um, 
you know, kind of new and different. Are there holy grails for you when it comes to champion collecting? Um, you mean like items or like where to find it? Yeah, specific items or, or known pieces that maybe you're looking for that you, you haven't been able to stumble upon yet. <sighs> I mean, there's so much that I haven't found. And it's interesting because every year, uh, I shouldn't say every year, every so often a book will come out and it'll be kind of a history of champion and a magazine, a Japanese magazine, of course, documented all these amazing pieces. And what they do is they go around to all these collectors. I have a few pieces in there and they'll go around to all these collectors and ask to borrow them and shoot them and put them in the magazine. Free and Easy used to be an amazing magazine. I don't think it's around anymore, but they were very good. It was a Free and Easy magazine. It was a Japanese-produced magazine. They were so good at kind of documenting menswear and kind of all the great stuff, whether it's Brooks Brothers or whether it's Ralph Lauren or whether it's Champion or Alden or even Nike. They would come out with a book every year kind of you know, paying homage to um, Champion. But there's a magazine company i think called lightning that did one a few years ago maybe like five years ago so i always like looking through that and it is almost like a wish book of things i wish i could find <laughs> um and it, and it tortures me but it, it's really awesome that they actually document these things because you know you kind of feel at home with them but you know there are definitely things and like i said the list is too far to even say it and this is the other thing I think people don't realize, you know, champion used to make most of the uniforms out there, whether it was NFL, they used to make NFL uniforms. They used to make uh, NBA uniforms. They were the Kings of making, you know, not only uniforms, but also they would make all the gear for um, collegiate athletic supply, whether it's Michigan or whatever. They were the ones that would make all of the equipment for, athletic departments and for the football team for them to practice in. And they did all that before Nike, before Adidas, before any of that, they were the ones doing it day in and day out. And they made most of, you know, most of the collegiate uniforms back in the day. So there's, it's one of these things that once you realize that you're like, there's, you know, all this stuff out there that you're trying to find. And some of that stuff, you know, probably got destroyed. But if you look through old yearbooks, if you look through, and that's what I do a lot is I look through these old yearbooks and find these wonderful kind items. And a lot of times, like the athletic departments, for example, you know, a lot of the graphics you would see on it were custom by the the guy who runs the athletic department. So he would be making sweatshirts and he would stencil on, you know, athletic department, property of, and that's where all that stuff came from is he was issuing it to... Uh, the players or the gym class, and it would have the per, you know the person's name in there. So when you hear about that, most people don't know this, and they're like, "Oh, that makes sense now." And that's the reason why I'm so obsessed with finding pieces because I'm trying to find kind of a part of history of you know from the '60s, '70s, you name it, of back when things were a little more simple. You know, Nike is now involved with a lot of this, so they kind of put a lot of money and marketing behind this. So it's not quite as authentic. It's been very commercialized where, you know, kids now they play at a university and they are handed a bunch of shoes and are handed a bunch of gear and they change uniforms. Like they really change their shirt. I think there's, you know, if you look at Oregon, I don't think they wear the same uniform. And I love Nike, don't get me wrong, but it's like it wasn't like the old days where you were issued a uniform and you had it the whole season. Um, right. <laughs> you, you didn't have a New Jersey every every game. And now it's kind of become one of these, these things that it's a little bit just because now there's a lot of money being made. Because obviously if whatever top athletes wearing Nike, of course, you know, the kids are going to wear want to wear Nike sneakers or the sweatshirt or what have you. So things have changed quite a bit, but I still covet those kind of the way things were done in the past. Is there anything else you're collecting? I know you're a watch guy, but any other items that you, that you kind of fawn over? Um, well, watches I love, I just can't afford to be as a avid collector. Although I do have a pretty kick-ass Timex collection. And some kick-ass collabs too. 
Yeah. No, thanks. Um, yeah, it's definitely, um, I collect a lot of yellow bean now. Um, I collect uh, a lot of apparel. I mean, I got, apparel for me is kind of, I get really excited by that. I do think, you know, apparel in general, just because that is kind of what I do, obviously, and it does kind of fill a void. But I do really appreciate um, vintage in general. There's, uh, I have to say, you know, I think about if I had all the money in the world, uh, I would probably be collecting more watches. And cars for me would be really fun. I, I although I chuckle at people that have you know, these billionaires that have, you know, hundreds of cars, I'm like, I can't drive it. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I, I bought, um, an old, uh, vintage Land Cruiser, a Toyota Land Cruiser. And, um, I loved it, but to be, I ended up selling it. Um, and to be honest with you, the reason why I sold it is that, it's expensive. It was like, a, I think I paid $120,000 to have it restored. And I ended up selling it for a nice profit. And I was scared to death to drive the thing, to be honest with you, because right. <laughs> what if someone, what if someone hits me? What if someone keys my car? Like I would be heartbroken. I would, be, I was so stressed out driving the thing. And honestly, I didn't, I didn't really love the attention because everybody would be like, Oh my God, I love your car. It's so beautiful. And then uh, you know, living in New York and having a car like that is just a little nerve wracking, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, watch out for the potholes. Exactly. You know, be, you know, between the traffic and I don't know. Anyway, so I ended up selling that. So I definitely, there's things I want to collect, but um, if I had the money, I, I think I probably would have a few. But, you know, with watches, for example, I have like three or four really nice watches that are on the expensive side. But at the end of the day, I can only wear one a day and it does it seems a little foolish to have more, but I do live vicariously through others for sure. I I would also argue that you kind of collect, you know, different collaborations and whatnot for your brand. Um, You've launched many, they're, they're ever growing. I mean, is there a collab that you would say is something that you would, you know, would be, uh, you know, end game collaboration for you that you just haven't done yet or something that maybe, you know, it's just want to put out into the ether. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, there's definitely ones that I have on my bucket list. You know, Nike for forever has been a brand for me that I really admire. Um, I think, uh, you know, I could see you doing a a collaboration on some kill shots. Yeah, I, I would love to do some kill shots. I, I've, um, I was hoping we ended up doing a collaboration with, um, Jack Purcell, I did one with them, two two or three, actually. And I love that. And they're owned by Nike. So I was hoping that that was going to turn into a Nike thing. But um, we'll see. Um, I keep knocking at the door. I also would love to do... I have just started doing interiors recently. I did a really cool project with a, uh, a resort up in Maine. Um, and I just fell in love with Maine after doing my collaboration with Ella Bean and started traveling up there a lot. And I now uh, summer up there um, with my family just because I fell in love with Maine so much that, so anyway, I, I was able to do a bunch of cabins in this It's called hidden pond and they have uh, probably 20 plus cabins up there that I remodeled um, and came up with a theme that was called seaside mountainside and countryside, like all kind of built around, main inspiration. And, um, I just loved it because, you know, you talk about that rig room. This was like the ultimate rig room. It was like, you know, everything from the bed to the rug, to the paint, to the wall coverings, to, you know, the bedspreads. I was able to, I really kind of create that, that moment, that feeling when you walk into it, you immediately get where you are. And I, I do a lot of that in my stores when I design stores is really kind of immerse the person into a mood, into a feeling, you know, through all the senses, whether it's through, you know, visual, through touch, you know, smell, you know, to the people that work there is really kind of, you know, making the customer feel at home, but also inspiring them to think differently. And that's kind of what I ended up doing at the, at Hidden Pond. And, um, 
you know, it's just really kind of cool. It's a, it's one of my favorite things because it really kind of transforms you kind of when you get into the space and it makes you feel relaxed and makes you feel, you know, feel like you're at home. I've seen the photos. It, it's incredible. I hope I get to visit it at some point. Um, and I'll be sure to link it up so people can check that out. I know brands like Shinola have kind of gotten into the hospitality space and launched their own, you know, hotel and things like that. I mean, is that something that you could see yourself getting into? Uh, for sure. For sure. I think it's a, it's a natural extension of, you know, who I am, you know, we're not just selling clothes. We are, we actually do sell a lot of the products in our store. We used to sell furniture in our stores, but to be honest with you, you know, it's actually another thing I started collecting was furniture, which is another expensive problem. Yes. <laughs> Good furniture is not cheap. No, no. And, um, you know, first dibs is one of my favorite places to go. So I worked with first dibs on our first store. That's a dangerous site. Very dangerous. But, you know, I got really good at it, meaning like you can find some really good deals and, you know, again, you know, finding dealers. It's actually a lot easier to find vintage furniture than it is vintage clothes because there's so many dealers out there. And people, you know, coveted furniture, I think, more than they do apparel. Most people kind of discard apparel after a while, whereas furniture kind of gets passed on generation to generation. So for that reason, it's easier to find a bit. So yeah, when when something's rare, it's um, a problem for me. So <laughs> um, collected, but they ended up. I worked with them on the, our first store here in the city in Madison in twenty six, and all the furniture was for sale. And it takes forever to find furniture and the right piece to fit in the right place. So once um, I started selling a lot of my furniture, it got very stressful for me because I had to find a similar piece. Um, and, um, for that reason, I stopped selling the furniture because I didn't want to then have to find the replacement. <laughs> All right, Todd, let's finish up here with the collector's gene rundown and, and you can answer this, any of these questions based on any of the collections you have, whether it's watches or champion or furniture, whatever it may be, however you see fit. All right. Yep. All right. What's the one that got away? Uh, the one that got away was a Rolex Explorer, and it's the I don't know I don't know the number on it. I want to say one six five five. I'm not sure, um, but anyway, it was um, this beautiful watch I found when I was in Hawaii. It, it was like my yeah. Wherever I go, I always have a tendency to go to see what is around. Um, so I went to the vintage watch dealer in Honolulu, and he had one with papers and the box. And at the time he was asking 15,000 and I, I just met my second wife and we were dating and I didn't want to be the, the douchebag to be like, I'm getting a watch. Um, but that's the <laughs> one I did not. She's like, ah, I don't get it. And I didn't get it. It's the one I still kick myself. The watch now is probably worth with box and papers, probably 30 plus thousand. Well, I'm sure one day it'll find its way onto your wrist. We'll see if I can afford that one. <laughs> How about the on-deck circle? What's what's next for you in your collecting? Um, for collecting, uh, I think furniture is really kind of the thing. I'm, I'm, you know, because we are, you know, we've been really fortunate. I've been really fortunate with the business. It's been really strong for the last five years. And, you know, being backed by American Eagle has just been amazing. Um and, and business has been so solid. We've decided to open stores, uh, more stores. So we just opened up Boston last week and LA last month and San Francisco last month. So in doing that, I get to kind of have fun and collect furniture and put, you know, the right pieces. I, I love finding like old mid-century modern pieces. Um, so I'm always on the hunt for that. And so that's kind of become my new pastime. Love it. And you also have a store opening up uh, at the Americana Mall in Manhasset. Is that correct? That's correct. We just opened up actually on Friday. Uh, it's doing really well. Oh, congratulations. Every time I'm in New York, I'm, I'm over that way. So I'll have to check it out. It, it's a beauty. It's, it's a smaller store, um, but it's a, it's a nice compliment to what we do in the city. And it's a nice, it's a, an amazing shopping center. It's probably pretty special to you to 
be in the same shopping centers as places like Ralph, where you kind of, you know, cut your cloth, uh, pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's a dream come true. I mean, I have to pinch myself sometimes when, you know, we're, a lot of us are all just like, you know, head down, let's get, get through this. And it's a lot of work to open up stores, but you know, I'm definitely blessed to have the opportunity to open stores and continue to open stores. And, um, you know, our business has been really strong and, um, I, I do feel blessed. What's the unobtainable, maybe one that you can't have, it's too expensive or in a museum or a private collection. I think art for me is really, um, dangerous as you said before, art for me is probably the ultimate, um, I do have some really great pieces and there are some artists that I love. I'm, I'm always inspired by art. My mom, um, was an art teacher, um, when I was growing up and always encouraged me to paint and draw. So that's part of the reason why I think I'm doing what I'm doing, um, which I think is really important just because a lot of people don't push art as much. I felt very comfortable in it. So for me, it was really easy for me to get into fashion I don't think most kids have that opportunity. Um, so art for me has always been the thing that kind of, I don't know, is the ultimate. Like, cause I do think it just is so inspiring and to see what, you know, a fellow human being can do and how it surprises you and delights you is just, it's, it's hard to quantify it. Couldn't agree more. It is also very dangerous because you know, it, 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 there's just, I mean, it's just so awesome. I, I, one of my favorite artists is, uh, Corey Daniels and he's, he's from Maine and he has a gallery up in, up in Maine. We actually shot our last, uh, lookbook, which was in December drop, um, in his gallery. And it's just, he's just not only the, what he does, but what he curates in his gallery is just incredible. So I'm always finding somebody new and different that, um, I just, you know, I'm inspired by. So I'd probably say that's the most, (laughs) you know, art in general. The page one rewrite. So if you could collect anything besides, I guess, any of your, your current and and we'll take art out of that. Is there, is there anything else you would be interested in? Probably not. I mean, I, I've been really fortunate to kind of work in a, in a field that, um, I'm able to kind of, do what I love, you know? So everything I kind of do, I just has, has kind of been part of my life. So, you know, whether it's been you know, the car I actually did was actually for work. I mean, I paid for it myself. So I think those are the things for me that I've always been able to kind of weave in the things I love into what I do for work. Love it. How about the goat? Who do you look up to in the collecting world? Oof, that's, that's a good, I would probably say, yeah, I think my favorite person and he, he's, he is my hero is Matt Jacobson. I don't know if you know Matt Jacobson, but I sure do. He, he, he's talk about someone who has great taste. He is at like, he is a, he's an amazing dresser. Like talk about someone who has just great style, but then on top of it, you know, everything from his watch to his homes, to his cars, to yeah, that house in uh, Joshua tree is pretty insane. Oh my God. Apparently he sold it by the way. He sold it. Oh, well it wasn't me who bought it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But that's a beautiful, we were trying to, we were trying to shoot there. We were trying to shoot our catalog there. And, um, I was on text with him and he ended up selling it. He said it was a Somebody during COVID who's kind of, you only live once kind of gave him the right price for it and he ended up selling it. So, which was, I was kind of heartbroken because he, that thing is ridiculous. Well, it's, it's on Airbnb. So if you, uh, if you want to oh. rent it out for your next shoot, I think you could do really? it. Really? <laughs> oh, wow. I, I'm going to look that up now. I'm going to tell my team, but yeah, I know he, he's kind of like the one I, I look up to. I mean, not only, I mean, he owns uh Birdwell as well. We've done collaborations with them and they were always on my bucket list of, of brands to work with. And, you know, when he bought it, he kind of made that happen, which was awesome. And just his people that he surrounds himself with, he's just a really, you know, he's very successful. I mean, he was like number like seven employee at Facebook. Um, 
but he's yeah, a, pretty just a, he's a he's a pretty amazing human being. Do you enjoy the chase or the sale? So the hunt or the ownership more? Definitely the chase. The the sell is heartbreaking. Like I like when I sold my um, my truck, it was heartbreaking, and um, you know getting it built, and you know I when I did the the truck, you know finding the right truck and finding the right year and finding the right engine, and I had it rebuilt with Red Wing leather interior. So like kind of finding it and then building it was just so exciting. And when selling it was just heartbreaking. Last but not least, do you feel that you were born with a collector's gene? I didn't think I was, but I definitely, yes, I, I would now admit I have. And, and I, I don't know if a collector's gene is a healthy thing <laughs> or, or uh, it's, it's definitely, I think I have a problem to be, now that you're kind of t- asking me all these questions, I'm like reflecting, I'm like, God, I might have a problem because I, <laughs> I collect everything. I, I really, now I think about it, it's like, geez, everything from furniture to watches. So, you know, art, it's a little OCD. <laughs> Todd, uh, thank you so much. I can't tell you how much fun that was for me and, and congrats to you and, and everything that you have going on. Well, thank you. No, I appreciate this. And thanks for, um, I feel like I was in therapy for a bit here. So now I got to figure out how to <laughs> calm myself down from my, like I'm, I'm ready to go shopping again. So you could call me anytime you're going to make a purchase, but just know I probably will. will talk you off the ledge <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Cheers to you. Thanks. All right. Thanks again. All right. That does it for this episode. Thank you all for listening to collectors gene radio.